May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. High above the floor of the Sistine Chapel, a naked Adam stretches out his finger to touch the hand of God. The beauty of Michelangelo's fresco captures our imagination and invites us into our text from the opening chapter of Genesis, plus a handful of verses from the second chapter. But the beauty of his artistic expression pales compared to the creative expression in our text. Luther suggested, if you were to search out everything about a kernel of wheat in the field, you would be so amazed, you would die. So utterly beautiful, so utterly amazing is the created universe that Luther's words should not be treated as hyperbole. Rather, they just scratch the surface. Our texts, along with the rest of chapter 2, are sometimes cut off from the biblical record. It's the story of creation, problematic in our thought world, and we do not always grasp the relevance, its relevance to the rest of God's word. But how we read, how we hear the beginning of the story deeply influences our reading of the entire story. So this morning, I would like us to consider the story of creation in five movements or five manifestations. The entire story, the Bible, if you will, is God's creative manifestation of himself. We confess him to be eternal, without beginning and without end, yet from our perspective, this is his first outward act. Everything he did prior to creation, the beginning of the Son and the procession of the Spirit, those are all internal and timeless. This being Trinity Sunday, this good rites and salutary that we note all three persons in the opening verses of our text. The Father, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Spirit, hovering on the face of the water. And the Word, the pre-incarnate Son, left there be light. This latter revelation, implicit in the text, and made explicit in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. So the triune God manifests himself by their activity in what I will call the original or pristine creation. In 18 verses, spanning four 24-hour days, God prepares a planet on which life could flourish what some scientists have called the Goldilocks planet. Consider the sun. It is neither too close nor too far away. It neither scorches nor freezes life. Consider the atmosphere, a thin blue line surrounding our planet when viewed from space. It contains just the right mixture of elements to sustain life and provides an insulating blanket to protect life. Consider water. If anything stands out in the portrait of Earth taken from outer space is that we live on a blue planet. Which is good news, because we are 90% water when we're born and 70% when we get old. Consider the land. God created this thin little surface of dirt. Topsoil. The Daniel Hill describes as the fertile substrate for the initiation and maintenance of life. Four days. And what does God say? It is good. Three times. Then, in the next two days, God creates an abundance, a staggering variety of life. Consider just one category, the invertebrates. There are one million species 
of insects. 85,000 mollusks, 47,000 crustaceans, 2,175 corals, 102, 248 anacrids, and four species of horseshoe crabs. Can't forget those little guys. <laughs> All told, scientists suggest that there are between 1 million and 10 million species of living creatures on the Earth. All created by God, who saw that it was good. Doubly good. Finally, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Charles Perriman reminds us that God made us from the earth for a life on the earth. More than that, he made us to care, to cultivate, to have dominion over creation, to use the language of Genesis. But that does not mean that we are to exploit or to use it for our sole benefit. Dominion is tied to the image and likeness of God. Our rule over creation should mirror God's rule. When God rules, it is for the benefit of those he rules over. So also with our vocation as steward, we are to help the earth. We are to help all creation to flourish. And as the man and the woman took up that task, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. But creation does not end with this pronouncement. The second movement, or second manifestation, we could call the ongoing creation. Now, Vacation Bible School is probably not going to be a happening thing this year, but one of the songs I love to sing with the kids is he's got the whole world in his hands. Remember? He's got the wind and the rain in his hands. He's got the sun and the moon in his hands. He's got the baby in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, you and me, sister. He's got the whole world in his hands. We're teaching our children more than we might realize in that little ditty. What does it mean, in his hands? Except that there is a spiritual dimension to every created object, every creature that we encountered. They were created by and sustained in their existence by God. In his argument with the Sacramentarians, Luther held that the power of God was present even in the tiniest tree leaf. He goes on even more expansively, suggesting that God, quote, must be present in every single creature in its innermost and outermost being, on all sides, through and through, below and above, before and behind, so that nothing can be more truly present within all of creation than God himself with his power. We hear the same thing from the psalmist. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Here, with the mention of death, we must step aside to note that what was once good, even very good, has gone very wrong. What has been implicit in our discussion, we must make explicit the distinction between creator and creature. 
Throughout the Bible, there is one and only one qualification that would go on a resume or a job description to qualify one to be God. We might summarize it this way. If you created everything that exists, then the job is yours. If you did not create everything, don't even bother to apply. And yet, even though we are unqualified, we still want to be God's. That was the temptation in the garden, wasn't it? What did the serpent have to say? You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman ate and gave some to her husband, who also ate. What struck me this time as I reread the garden account was the generic terms, woman and husband, no names. It lends extra weight to what St. Paul would write later. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, for all had sinned. Earlier in that same letter to the Romans, Paul points out another result of our confusion over the creator-creature distinction. Chapter 1, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. We sometimes scoff at the Old Testament injunctions against idol worship, arrogantly supposing that we, we no longer engage in such primitive practices like iconic idolatry. Yet we sense an element of nature worship in our own language, in our own community. Indeed, the term Mother Nature sounds suspiciously like a fertility goddess. More often today, the worship of created things manifests itself in what? Home and cars and Technology, electronic gadgets, alcohol, clothing, entertainment, and so on. Recall Luther's assessment in the large catechism. A God is that to which we look for all good, and in which we find refuge in every time of need. Perhaps we are not as sophisticated in our fine idolatry after all. And we would be eternally lost except for the third movement, or the third manifestation of creation. It is the pivotal point in the creation story. God, once again, sees, identifies, and calls out to a man that he can call good. Matthew's account of the Jordan. But Jesus answered John, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This man is good. In passing, we note the Trinitarian presence of the Father, Son, and Spirit. But returning to the language of that little text, to fulfill all righteousness. That's story language. That's creation language. God's story was known to Jesus, but for us, the horizon of sin limits our vision. Jesus came to do something very specific in the creation story. He came to put his righteousness on us. He came that through this gift, we who were once very good and had become corrupt, will become good again. 
It's the story within the story. The life, death, and resurrection of the Son. We comprehend His life in a perfect obedience, His revelatory grace as He ministers to men and women in their needs. We confess His substitutionary death for my sin and for yours. We celebrate His resurrection from the dead. Jeff Gibb writes, In one unthinkable stroke, God the Father authorized and filled with power and meaning all of Jesus' ministry and teaching and truth, and he transformed the darkest of days and made it possible for Jesus' death to be saving, good, gospel. Easter is not just revelation. It is divine intervention and saving deed. Close quote. Easter declares, you are good. Once again, very very good. Charles Aaron suggests that God restores us to creation by means of his creation. Just as he made us from the earth and cursed us from the earth, now he restores us by means of the earth. As the Lord takes hold of water and bread and wine and uses them for the gospel. Through these sacramental means, he declares once again, you are good. You are my good creation. The fourth moment or manifestation of the creation story we may call ongoing renewal. It is uniquely the role of the Spirit. He takes the merits of the Son and applies them to us, the creatures of the Creator. He takes us new creations from water and word and makes us daily renewed creatures for the works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. In keeping with our, our story theme, listen to how St. Ambrose relates the work of the Spirit in the story of St. Peter's denial. After noting that Jesus was present inside the high priest's house, while Peter was outside, he writes, It cannot therefore be said that it was with his bodily eyes that the Lord turned and looked upon Peter by a visible and noticeable admonition. That, then, which is described in the words, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, was affected internally. It was worked in the mind, worked in the will. In mercy, the Lord silently and secretly approached, touched the heart, recalled the memory of the past, and with his own internal grace, visited Peter, stirred and brought out into the external tears the feelings of this inner man. Behold what manner God is present with his help in our wills and actions. Behold how he works in us both the will and to do. Close quote. Such is the fourth movement of the creation story, ongoing renewal. The fifth and final movement or manifestation of the creation story is the, the new creation. I'm not sure that's the best term because Paul uses that term to describe our baptismal life. Perhaps he should call us new creatures, but then again, he was not mincing words for my homilot of the purposes anyway. Here, though, new creation, I, by that term, I'd refer to the, to the one half, the second half of infinity. Have you ever thought about that? We are now infinite creatures. Going forward, we will participate in, we will grasp, we will enjoy, we will be a part of that 
which is not just good or even good, but very, very good. We might even say Trinitarian good. St. John records for us the voice from the heavenly throne. Behold, I am making all things new. What will that be like? We began with Luther's wonderment concerning a, a grain of wheat. Let us end with his reflection on this new creation from his commentary on the Psalm of the Day, Psalm 8. Then there will also be a new heaven and earth. The light of the moon will be as light as the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold. It will be immeasurably brighter than now. That will be a broad and beautiful heaven, and a joyful earth, much more beautiful and joyful than paradise was. Close quote. In Jesus, God looks at us. He looks at all creation and says, very, very good, once again. Amen. Now may the peace that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.